So now turning to Acts chapter 28, the final chapter. Here now, the very word of God. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hand on him, hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius in the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, 
Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have been able to be on this journey that we are able to see the Holy Spirit's work through your people, that we are able to see the appointed apostles that were given charge to proclaim the kingdom of God and the king that sits on the throne. Father, help us now to take these words this day, to take them to heart, that we would hear with our ears and see with our eyes, and that our hearts would believe that we would turn from any and every sin, and that you would heal us and continue to regenerate us for the purposes of the furthering of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we made it. We made it to the end. We made it to Rome. And there may have been some days you may have been listening to the preachings. Now, we're ever going to make it to Rome, and I'm sure whatever difficulty and distress you may have endured through this time, it was nothing like what Paul and what those had gone through to get to this point. But it was a fulfillment. It was a fulfillment of a promise, and we have great and wonderful reasons to be thankful that this was recorded and provided for us as we consider our part on this journey in the spreading of the name of Jesus Christ. Again, I think that everything that we receive, and to different degrees, and I'm sure that I will proclaim one thing to be highlighted more than what is necessary, and I may uh, under-emphasize something in God's word that maybe should receive greater emphasis, and I pray for the Lord's mercy in those things. But I do believe that the Lord gives us these words to contemplate and to consider, and I think every one of them are blessed and good for us to consider. In this very first sentence, it's an encouraging thing, but it's also an insightful thing that it says here that after we we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Now, if you remember in the last chapter that we saw that Paul was given insight that they were going to make it, and he had the level of insight from the direction of the Lord that they would land on some island, but he said, I don't know what the name of that island is. And then as we begin this chapter, we see that Luke says that they had determined that it was Malta. And it's interesting, now that we know that it was Malta, does it really make that much of a difference? You know, that we often want to know, where are we going? I know that a lot of times when my kids are talking to me, like, when and where (laughs) and all kinds of questions. And in the long run, it's like if I tell them that they'll say, Dad, where are we? And I'll give them the name of the town or the place that we are when we're traveling. They don't know what that place is, <laughs> and they don't know any of the significance of that, but they need to know where. We often want to know who, what, where, when, and how, and that is a difficult thing for us. We, in our future, as we consider and contemplate our future, we're often wanting to know that. I know as young people, often want to know, you know, if even are we going to get married, and who is it? And when will it be? And then we often think about our work. You know, where are we going to work? And what am I going to do? And, and you know, am I going to have kids? And, you know, am I going to be sick? Am I going to ever get better? You know, we're always wanting to know the when, what, who, how, why, all the time. And those are reasonable things. We don't like to go into the dark, and nor did these people, I'm sure, wanted to be in the dark. But as we've been given this first sentence, we know that they were in Malta. And it's really not so much the importance of where, because this was not the end game. This was not what Jesus had told Paul was the main focus of what his mission was. He was going to get to Rome to proclaim the gospel. He, would, he was given that specific insight from the Lord. So whatever island they landed on really did not matter so much. And the interesting thing is, is that the church has been debating since then whether they were actually even on Malta. Now they look at Malta today and guess what they don't have on Malta today? 
snakes. And so there's no snakes on Malta, so it couldn't have been Malta. Now, we know that within a couple of thousand years, snakes can come and go. I was somewhere recently, someone was telling me that they introduced, uh, I think, uh, some kind of snake to get rid of another snake and because it was getting overly populated. And so they killed all of those snakes or they introduced different animals in different places. And so animals can be extinct from different regions here and there, but that's not enough to consider that that might not have been the case. But it's still maybe a plausible argument that even if really literally for centuries there's been uncertainty about whether or not it was really the Malta of as today because of the Greek word Miletus. There's actually another place called Miletus also on the Adriatic Sea on the east side of Italy in Rome. And they say that even with the way the time of the year is, that the currents run up the Adriatic Sea and that it would have been very difficult to come across from east to west. I mean, no. Yeah, east to west. I may have said, I'm getting it backwards. But anyway, they were going east to west, that the the currents would have pushed them up into the Adriatic Sea. And there actually are snakes on the particular island up there. And that's really important, right, for us to know that. Not really. It's, It's not. We can trust the Lord's word that um, whatever island it was, that it, it was, whether it was Malta, Melita, or wherever it may have been, that they landed on an island and they were still trying to get to Rome. That it's really somewhat insignificant, though it is a significant component of participation in what the Lord has to reveal, but it's really not these particular who, what, where, when, and why, and how that is so much important, though there is a who, what, where, when, and why, and how overarching this that is being displayed on this particular island. And so therefore, it is very important for us that we do trust that they did land on an island and that whatever island they discovered that it was, that the Lord was proclaimed through miraculous signs and the proclamation of his word and through healing that was very much the fulfillment of the things that Jesus said that he would do through and in his people, and particularly with Paul as he made his way to Rome. We see that these particular natives here, that they were not of the regular Greeks. They were still Gentiles, but they were not Jews, but they were distinct. And that's one reason why Luke calls them, he actually calls them barbarians when you have the word native there, because they were different, their language and their customs, though their customs are already interwoven somewhat with the Greek religions. Um, And so we see that with the justice here, there's lots of consideration and thought that it was a, a God of justice that they were talking about. But we see here that God granted these people, these Gentile people, a certain kind of grace as he was given Paul grace. It says that Paul received a respite here, that they were given unusual kindness by these particular people. That they were welcoming to them as they came, and they were helping warm them and take care of them and feed them. And we see that God responded seemingly even to their kindness by putting forth before them the signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. We see this hospitality through their unusual kindness. We see that there with Publius, Publius, that he received and entertained them and that they honored them greatly. These are not just happenstance things that this particular posture toward God's messenger was a significant component to God's desire to how they would perform the signs. If you see what Jesus preaches, that he doesn't just always provide signs just willy-nilly, that he gives them to specific people for specific purposes. We can go all the way back into Genesis that God even promises that he will bless those who will bless the messengers of God. And so I believe that there is a fulfillment of that occurring here, that God in his providence, but also in the interactivity of these particular people, God is going to show forth, as a lot of common people today would say, God came to town. He showed up there on this island and proclaimed his might and his wonder. We also see that Paul responded um, with that hospitality by picking up the sticks himself and participating. It's kind of a side note. I've got 
two side notes here that's not really significant overall in the passage, but Paul was helping. He wasn't just kind of sitting there. And so I often think about that, that I know that many times, especially on Sunday after I preach, I'm just tired and zoned out. And I'm not as willing to participate in helping. And so let it be an encouragement that even after all of that struggle, and even though these people were showing hospitality, men, make sure to help out. Pick up some sticks, start a fire, wash some dishes. So we have two particular signs being performed before these people on the island. Before Paul makes it all the way to Rome, God is going to fulfill promises once again of his signs and wonders and his proclamation of his kingdom here on this particular island for these particular people. Now, the interesting thing that's something somewhat distinct from other things that Luke has written in Acts, it doesn't talk about any kind of specific proclamation of preaching to these people. That is primarily signs and wonders. And we know that signs and wonders come along with the word of God. And I want to make an argument that there was very likely preaching going on also. But just because it's absent and somewhat distinct from other accounts in the book of Acts, it doesn't mean that he just came and performed these mercy ministries to these people. One, I want to go back to um, the book of Romans. I say go back to the book of Romans because Paul had written the book of Romans before he had gotten to this point because we know that Paul was wanting to get to Rome. I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Romans off and on today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd flip over into Romans anyway because as we go to Rome, it's good for us to, to look at the letter that he sent to the Romans. In chapter 15 of the book of Romans, looking at verse 18, it says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. But Paul told the Romans that as he is going to the Gentiles, that he has an objective. His objective is to present Christ to the Gentiles, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonder, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know that there was very likely that he is proclaiming, preaching at the same time, but that these particular signs and wonders are teaching us, based upon what we understand about signs and wonders, based upon why God gives us signs and wonders and what he typically is proclaiming in and through them. We see that this is actual fulfillment, very specific fulfillment. As Jesus made his way to sit on the right hand of God the Father, he made this very specific proclamation in Mark chapter 16. Starting with verse 14, after he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they have not believed those who saw him after he had risen, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We see that this continues to follow the theme of the book of Acts, which is the reigning kingdom of God. As Jesus is sitting on the throne, the book of Acts is showing us the posture and the proclamation and the furthering of his kingdom and how it will be initiated through these extraordinary apostles as they preach and proclaim God's word. We see here that their response is teaching us what the mindset of those people were. When they saw this particular sign, it was very much to the very point that they were thinking that when they saw the serpent latch onto Paul's hand, they thought, surely this man is a murderer. 
Surely that even after all that they had gone through, that he was a wicked man and justice was at hand. As the snake serpent was there on his hand, they thought this is justice at hand. Guilt is assumed. But the interesting thing is, is that as Paul did not, and it's, it's a funny scene, it's, it's, it's hard not to laugh when you think about it. You know, they, they see it happen and they're probably, <gasps> and then they're just kind of watching Paul. Though we've seen this before, he'll swell up and he'll die. <laughs> and so they're all just kind of waiting, you know, and Paul's moving on with his work and they're like, What's up with this guy? And it's amazing to what extreme that they go. They go from one moment of thinking, wow, this guy, justice has come. This guy is guilty. But when the typical hand of justice does not fulfill its end, they think then the only explanation is that he is some sort of God that is above justice that is greater than justice, that has some level of righteousness and innocence within itself. Turn to Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 9. Knowing that Paul wrote this to those in Rome, and Paul here was given the great gift of being able to have a serpent latch onto his hand and not die, that it is likely, since we know that Paul was truly a man of the word, that he may have even pulled from this particular letter to explain the, what the sign meant. And so I think it is good and right for us to go to Romans here to maybe see how this sign would have been a teaching component and a proclamation of the kingdom of God at that moment. In verse 9, it says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we see here that in this proclamation that everyone is leveled and guilty, that as they were looking and considering that what specific sin has this guy done to deserve to have justice grasped onto his hand, that Paul would have been easy to come and proclaim to him that it is, yes, I am a murderer. You know, we know for sure that, though it doesn't tell us in the word, that Paul didn't just accept that they were thinking that he was a god. You know, it wasn't like, you know, C-3PO when they thought he was a god and he just, he just kept going on. He would have stopped and said, no, I'm, I am a servant. I am actually very much guilty of being a murderer. I'm guilty of all sins. In fact, all of you all deserve greater condemnation than even a serpent's bite. But the serpent that we are to be most concerned about is the devil himself as he is used as an avenue of the one who is, as we see here in verse 21, the righteousness of God. That Jesus is the one who is the just one, that he would have said, no, I am not God. I am not the one who could have power and dominion over this justice. Who is this one? Who is the God that is at hand? Verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here would have been a perfect opportunity, and it could be assumed that Paul would have proclaimed the very message that he had already sent to those in Rome, that yes, we are all guilty. We are all those who are going to fall under the hand of the true just one, not this false god of justice. But they had an understanding that there has to be some necessity of justice. And this teaches us that often that the law of God is a very significant component of our evangelism. It is a necessary component, not just significant. It is a necessary component. I was listening to Mark Dever from Washington, D.C. talking about that. That is the most absent thing that he sees in modern evangelicalism is that they do not proclaim the law of God. And when you do that, you make the gospel disappear. If you do not proclaim the law of what the law has done and that we are all leveled by the law, then you are not giving any kind of grace or proclamation, but that there is some idea that Jesus can be proclaimed without it is just nonsensical. We have here an opportunity for Paul to say, yes, I am guilty, but the amazing thing is that Paul will not receive the wrath of justice because the power that he is proclaiming and they're representing in these signs is that he has the righteousness of Christ. Yes, the only one who can not be judged by justice is the just, but he is also the justifier. He is the justifier for those who believe, who have faith. And not just the Jews, but to these barbarians on Malta. The gospel is proclaimed and it is actually fulfilled in its proclamation in how the sign is done here. That he has power over the serpent because Jesus Christ has power over the serpent. Therefore, the proclamation in the gospel that Paul is proclaiming is pointing to that one who is and has dominion over all things. Then we see that Paul moves on and he goes to Publius and we see that Publius' father is sick and it is a bad sickness. And we see a very simple thing that Paul does is that he lays his hands again in fulfillment of the very promises that Jesus said that his apostles would do. And he heals them, and he heals others at the same time. God is powerful over all creation and the recreation, over the resurrection. Paul is always preaching about the resurrection, about the victory over sin and death. And it is very apparent that Paul would have proclaimed the resurrection here because that is very much what the power of the sign, or what the the sign is pointing to, what power the sign is is pointing to, he has power over sin. He has power over death. If you would turn to chapter 6 of Romans, and looking at verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin 
live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm going to pause here just so I won't forget that the actual Greek here for set freed, and I'm not sure why, just about every English translation will say set freed, but then in the notes it will say the Greek actually says justified from sin. To help us to understand even better there that it's not just that we are free, that the, that the sin still does not cling in this flesh, but that we are justified. That here Paul, still a sinner, can present a presentation of how he is not going to be one that will receive justice for sin because he is justified by the one who is the just and justifier of our sin. Now, if we have died from the dead... We will never die again. Death will no longer have dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Again, we see here that we see a clear understanding that it has to do with being justified, that we are not those who are going to receive justice because we are those who are qualified and classified as those who are no longer under the dominion of sin. Therefore, we are no longer under the dominion of death because Jesus is the one who reigns with dominion over those things. So Jesus is being proclaimed by this sign of healing. That it's not just a nice exchange. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You took good care of me here as we landed on your island. And therefore I'm going to heal some of your people so that they can die and go to hell later on. No, that it is a sign of the apostle that was proclaimed and instituted by Jesus Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God, that this is going to be the establishment through my apostles of the church. And then there's this really interesting side note here. There's you know, all the commentaries I read. There's nothing really um, um, to say about it other than it's just the irony of it. That is, as they go from there, they get on this ship that has... Twin God figureheads, Casper and Pollux. Pollux. There's actually a, a company of, of some kind of food company named Casper and Pollux, and I hadn't had time to research why they decided to name their food that. But it's two gods, and it was they were considered the gods of of, uh, of of ships and of travel. And here we see that the God who actually pr- provided them safe passage to get where He wants them is the God that's actually powerful over all these things. And for some reason, Luke says, I guess it's just to show us the condition of paganism that they were in, that they had some element of understanding justice. They had a God for justice, and they had an understanding of righteousness because they assumed that but Paul would have to be a God to be one that would not receive justice. And they knew that God is the one who provides safe passage. And that's very much... One reason why the law is so important in the Old Testament is so important for us in the proclamation of the gospel is because it brings clarity to things that Romans 1 says is in the conscience of mankind. 
that they know these things through creation. They know the attributes of justice. They know the attributes of righteousness. They know the attributes of protection by the very creation and the very life that they have of being those bearing his image. That is why when we go before the courts and we go before boards of supervisors and go before city council, that regardless of whether or not they are Christian or not, we can appeal to those particular things. Now the amazing thing in our time of wickedness, though there's nothing new under the sun, that we are definitely in a season of a heightened loss of that understanding. We're at the further end of Romans chapter 1, where God has given people over to hardness of heart and complete wickedness. But Paul finally arrives at Rome. This is what Paul knew. He, he didn't know a whole lot more other than he knew that he was going to make it to Rome. You know, just like we, we don't know a whole lot. We know some very specific things that God has promised for his people and for his church, but not very specifically. We know that his church will always stand and will always further. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail. And we know that generally that adherence to his principles and wisdom will make things go well with us in life. It does not promise us a particular timing of life an extension of life. But we can tell that through his word, he is always true and just to fulfill the things that he has promised. And we see here that Paul knows at least he is going to make it to Rome. Now we know that Paul was hoping to go beyond Rome. He knew he would make it to Rome. And occasionally he thought he might die before he got there, maybe in a moment of weakness of faith. But Jesus specifically told him he would make it to Rome. And I think it's good for us to go back again to the book of Romans in chapter 15 to look at what Paul had in mind and what he was anticipating at his arrival and where he was anticipating going after his arrival to Rome. Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 22, says, This is the reason why I have been so often hindered from coming to you, speaking to those Christians in Rome. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. Oops. Did I, just, I think I, oh, I got off track there. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We see that Paul was, had his sights on Spain, that he wanted to keep on going, even beyond to what was considered to be the ends of the earth. He was going beyond even into the other ends of the earth, by wanting to go to Spain. But he had an anticipation and he had a longing that once he got there, that he would be helped. That he would come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ and that he would be not only delivered from the unbelievers, but that when he would arrive there, he was anticipating that he would be received with joy and be refreshed. And he was. The Lord was giving respite. Here we see in this particular chapter a fulfillment of what 
Jesus had promised Paul. And what Paul, and what desire that he put into his heart. This is a sweet blessing that it says that when they got there, the brothers showed hospitality so much that Paul thanked God and he took courage. He was anticipating that when that time of assembly and gathering with those in Rome, that he knew that it would be a refreshment, that he would be encouraged by it. Even though he was wanting to keep on going to Spain, he wanted to stop there so that he could be refreshed. And even before he got to those in Rome, God used pagans to refresh him and gave him an opportunity to continue with the proclamation of the gospel. Paul had no idea that that particular thing would happen there in Malta. He just knew some basic understandings of his particular office. He knew particular things and how God was going to work in and through him. But he didn't know specific names of people and when in the timeline. He had no idea. We could see that he had been hindered multiple times on getting to Rome, but God still got him to Rome, still used those means, though extraordinary in his case, they were ordinary for those who were apostles. They fit the bill for the people that were called as apostles for Jesus Christ. And so all of those things were accomplished. And God continued, just as he did of old, continued to refresh his messengers. So Paul is in Rome. He's made it there. And he, the first thing he's going to do, which follows the same template of everything else that he did, was that he was going to go to the Jews first. Even the Jews that would be in Rome. Even in his letter to the Romans, he explains to them that I've got to go to Jerusalem. Though he was on a diaconal mission to help those by bringing contributions that were gathered to help out those in Jerusalem. He was also there to proclaim the gospel. He knew he had to go to Jerusalem first, that he couldn't get to Rome without going to the Jews first. So as he gets to, even though he's already received the welcome committee of other believers But as he begins to preach, he is going to preach one last time to the Jews. And as far as we can tell, and in the recording account, recorded accounts that we have in Scripture, this is the last time that he actually calls for an audience amongst the Jews. He tells in Romans 15, 8 through 9, it says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Paul continues with the same format as we've seen over and over again. He appeals to his earthly justification. Again, he has a greater justification in Christ, but he's explaining how he did not do anything against them, that actually he is preaching and proclaiming consistency to what the supposed hope that they should have. Let us remember what that hope is, as Paul mentions it here. Paul had a hope in the promises made by God our fathers. He had a hope in the worship. He has already appealed to the Jews that the worship that we do is focused and revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that ultimately it is the hope in the resurrection of the dead by the power of that Christ. These are the hopes that he has preached over and over to the Gentile, excuse me, to the Jews. And he does so again, saying that I am not going against the things that you supposedly ultimately believe. But I am actually here to proclaim the fulfillment of those things. Again, we see here in Acts 28 that he appeals to his citizenship. That it is through his citizenship that he is able to be there then. He had no idea how he was going to make it to Rome. And it would have been, it would have been a, a quite the conversation to be there amongst those Christians in Rome. As it's like, man, this is, this is not what we anticipated. That was a rough ride. And he has chains on. Who would have thought? You know, he knew that he was going to get there, 
but he didn't know what kind of ship he was going to be on. He didn't know that he would be in chains. He did not know that he was going to have to appeal to his citizenship to get there, but it was through that appealing. It was through understanding the law, using all resources that God had given him from the very beginning of his life as he started out and became even a Roman citizen, that that citizenship would be the thing that would be his tool of gospel proclamation. The amazing thing that we speculate based upon the history and the teaching of the, the ancient church, it was also his citizenship that kept him from being crucified, but instead beheaded. He carried that proclamation of his citizenship through every avenue of his proclamation, even into his death, that his death came by beheading because it was wrong and below those of Roman citizenship to be crucified. Again, based upon the teaching, not necessarily has been confirmed by scripture, but from what we can understand in the teaching. Paul, ultimately, as he stood there before these Jews, was again proclaiming the kingdom of God. He came back to all the things that they should have been well aware of, and he pointed out Christ and the law and the prophets. He used the very word of God that they supposedly held to, just as he used the principles of justice and the principles of righteousness to those of Malta. He had should have an open door and clearer path to Christ by going to the law and prophets that have been given to the people of God as a blessing. Thankfully, some did believe. He was able to convince some of those. And we see that the Spirit worked in the heart of those. But for some reason in God's providence, Luke ends this particular story with the Jews on a negative note. Because it was ultimately the fulfillment of the promises of God that the Jews would reject. That ultimately that they would reject, that that they would have hard hearts, that they would have blind eyes, that they would have deaf ears. Here he is ultimately proclaiming to them, even in proclamation, that they need to turn and be healed. He is ending this particular chapter of his ministry by doing the very thing that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the continuation of John the Baptist's ministry of preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The salvation of God is at hand. Listen, see, turn, and be healed. The healings that he had as a special sign was to point to the healing and the resurrection and the dominion over sin and death, the salvation of God. And even in that proclamation, instead of being struck to the heart, of judgment, they received their judgment and they walked away. But Paul continues, and it does not end there. It says that he lived there for two whole years. I'm sorry, I actually skipped a verse. It says, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness boldness and without hindrance. From what we understand, it was during this time, which is probably around 60 to 62 AD, that he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, the letter to Philemon, and quite possibly the book of Hebrews. A lot happened here in Rome. Not only did he proclaim the gospel to the household of Caesar, as we see at the end of the letter to the Philippians, when he says that the household of Caesar greets you. And that's a a big encompassing thing, and there's a lot of debate there whether it was just specifically the Caesar's household, which would have been Nero, and we know that Nero is the one who actually executed him, so we don't really know what all is going on there, but all those are under the household, which would have been at minimum his servants and those in his estate and his slaves. Some even argue that it is all under the dominion 
of Caesar. So he was basically saying that it has now entered into the kingdom of Caesar, that the Gentiles of having the gospel proclaimed that there are Christians here that are the servants of Jesus Christ. It is speculation that even from here that he went on to Crete, Miletus, Colossae, Toaz, Philippi, Corinth, and Nicopolis, but very unlikely that he ever made it to Spain. It seems that from what we understand, some even argue that he never left, but it does seem like he did leave, came back. Um, He was back in Rome around 66 and 67 A.D., And things had really changed in Caesar's household at that time. There was a great fire in Rome. And we know through historical accounts, we know that the Christians were blamed. Some even say that Nero did it himself so that he could build it according to his own likeness and have a reason to go after the Christians. And it is likely that Paul was beheaded around 67 A.D., He had spent half of his life in the ministry of the name of Jesus Christ. He had spent all of his life in some type of proclamation of God's truth, whether it had been by proclaiming the old law and without an understanding of its fulfillment. It looks like he would have likely have come to the Lord around age 29, and here he is now in his 60s. Paul is not over here with Paul. Jennifer broke down a little bit when we were thinking about that this is it. No, it's not. We see here that he wrote all of these letters and we see that the kingdom of God is continuing and it should provoke in us an understanding that here he had arrived to the ends of the earth, but he began to continue by proclaiming to the Gentiles and we have it by the ways of the epistles. It is one reason why the epistles are some of the most important parts of the scriptures because it is here where we have our marching orders from the king. We should continue on. We see now the establishment of the church. And now we can say, okay, where is the who, what, where, when, and how, and why? Well, we know the who, which is Jesus Christ. We know the what, which is the kingdom of God. We know the how through the Holy Spirit. We don't know the winds other than the kingdom of heaven is at hand now. We know that. And we know what we should be doing because Paul has taught us through our covenant lives together as a church, as families, as husbands and wives, as children, as parents, as those who are reaching out and speaking up for the defenseless, those who are visiting those in weakness. Those in sickness. We know we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether we are married or unmarried. We see all of these things in the great riches of what God has given to us in the ministry of this apostle Paul. And we see that we will model him in many different ways. In tenor and sometimes in very specific ways as we also proclaim the gospel. The church continues on. Though we are not apostles, we are children of God. And we have not only the inheritance and the benefits of that spiritual blessing, but we also have the calling of the proclamation of the gospel and the commitment to even the material blessings that we share with one another. The message continues, and it's simple as this. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.